Thanks for joining us today on a special episode of the Jesus Famous Podcast with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Today we have a special guest in the studio sharing their story about how Jesus has changed their life. Join us as we discuss stories and discover how Jesus is famous in the testimonies of those around us. All right, Pastor Mike Casey, welcome, man. It's great to sit down with you and spend some time with you. It's good to be here. You know, I was thinking about who you are and the ministry that you have. And one thing that people say to me so often is they say, man, you and Mike, your stories are so similar. <laughs> I hear that all the time too. Yeah, right. I mean, you grew up in a in a Christian home. You got saved when you're like in your in your teenage years, and your dad was a pastor, and you got called to ministry when you're 18. That's that's not your story. No, 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 <laughs> no. It's Mike. I am. Before we talk, you know about who you are and your story, and I'm so honored that you do this with me. I just want to say thank you for being who you are and being part of this church and you know what you have meant to this fellowship this body of believers over the years is just I don't think anybody can quantify it really I mean it's just bled out into so many beautiful ways in our church's life and uh, you you and what you do you shake things up man you shake things up you give us that bigger heart for our community so it's an honor to be able to talk to you and kind of hear your story a little bit. And that's what I want to do today. It was a, it was a few years ago. I sat down and I thought, okay, I got to read Mike's book. And for those of you who are listening to this, he, Mike has written his life story in a book called Comfortably Numb. And you can purchase that wherever you buy books. And I thought to myself, okay, I got I to I gotta read this. I know Mike worked really hard on this and... I thought I knew your story. <laughs> and then I sat down and started reading and I could not stop reading your story. I think partly just the, the amazing miracle of in combination with what you were up against and then the Lord grabbing a hold of you out of all that. It just was like, it was a real page turner. Uh, definitely. Uh, parental guidance warning, you know, <laughs> attached to that. It is. Yeah. Um, the only thing I can say is it's all God. I mean, a hundred percent, uh, because my story is it's sadly, it's not unique. Um, obviously to me it's unique, but it's not unique. Um, kind of in the economy of today, the way things are going, the right. way, uh, people are changing, uh, I would say people not turning to Christ. And so unfortunately my story is becoming more and more common the further away we get from Christ. Yeah. Well, for those who are just popping in for the first time, you know, we've got a lot of new people in the church or we've got people who are listening to this who aren't part of Calvary Monterey. Um, tell them who you are and the ministry that you perform here at the church. Cause you're one of our, our pastors here at Calvary. So what do you do? So what I get to do is um, I get to be the recovery pastor. So Monday nights we do a recovery meeting called Regeneration. It actually started here in 2004. Uh, it's been meeting every Monday night since. And the idea, I did an interview with Caleb that aired on Sunday night. And the host asked me, what sets Regeneration apart from AANA? 
or celebrate recovery. And I shared a story of the conversation I had with you many, many years ago outside of what's now my office. Um, I asked you, can you recommend a book to teach me about the Bible? And you said, Mike, it's the Bible. And I said, no, you don't understand. I want a book that is going to teach me everything I need to know about the Bible. And you again said, it's the Bible. I was pretty frustrated. I, I think you knew that. And I said, no, I want a book that is going to teach me about the Bible. And you said, Mike, it's the Bible. And so what I was able to say was what sets us apart is we primarily depend on the Bible. That's what we talk about. That's what we learn. That's what we teach. And we don't depend on any other outside resources other than the Bible. So what you said many, many years ago had such great wisdom. Uh, I never knew that I would go on to use the Bible to start a ministry to um, teach recovering addicts about Jesus Christ and who he was and not use other resources or other books or other things like other ministries use. I know AA and NA have the big book. A Celebrate Recovery have a, some type of steps that they've redone biblically, but we just used the Bible, and we teach them about Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, and how to have him be a part of your life and how he, his delivering and healing power can change your life. Well, I definitely could recommend books that would help you understand the Bible, but I, I think I got the sense when you asked me that question, like, you didn't really want to read the Bible. I didn't. And <laughs> that, I was trying to find a uh, a way out that was going to be uh, okayed by you. Yeah, the like, shortcut. Yeah, Nate said I didn't have to read the Bible. That's what I would have went home and told Michelle. <laughs> the Cliff's Notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. so you do that on Monday nights, and I've been to that a handful of times. And yeah, it is powerful the way that you're able to take Scripture. I remember popping in one night, and you were teaching through the book of Romans, and you were just going sequentially through the book of Romans and you have such a knack for talking to someone who comes out of either addiction, you know, just right then, you know, they're fresh out of that world and life and habit, or that's something that they're, you know, years removed from, but they know I've got to stay on top of this or else I'm going to fall back into it. You've got such a knack for taking the word, explaining what it is, and then applying it to that situation and that stage of life. But then you also have the bridge. So tell us what that's all about, because that takes a little bit of your time as well. So it does. So uh, starting the Monday night meeting, what we were seeing were people that were coming on Mondays. They were having a day or two of sobriety. And then we actually had a lot of people come to us and say, hey, it's great. I come on Monday nights. I kind of get filled up. I leave. It kind of wears off. And I'm right back to where I started. I need something more. And so I, um, I really felt like God impressed it on my heart to start a men's home. So I went to my mentor at the time, Bob Stewart, and I told him, and he said, I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life. I don't want you to mention this conversation or what God said to you at all to Michelle. If by some miracle God confirms it in her, then we'll know that God truly spoke to you. It was over a year later. Wow. On a Sunday, I uh, was passing Michelle in the foyer because she was uh, doing the children's ministry. And uh, I was heading through and she was coming upstairs. And just as our eyes met, she said, I think we need to open a men's home. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> what did you just say? 
And so for me, that was confirmation. I had no idea what, what I was going to do, what we were going to do. So we just started putting dudes on our couch. That was it. I met a guy at the transit uh, in Monterey who had just gotten out of prison for murder. He was 26. He went in at, he went in at 17. And about a month later, we, or a couple months later, we moved him into our home. Um, and that was kind of how the bridge unofficially started. We just wanted to help people. I remember those early days. I remember the first real official house you had. You had a home in uh, Seaside, mm -hmm. I think it was. And you and Michelle had the main small humble house. And then behind it was a little granny unit that you packed, I think, four or five men into. And then the garage was where you'd have corporate Bible studies. I remember going over there and giving Bible studies in the morning. But, but now it's developed into... Uh, pretty far-reaching ministry. So tell us what the current state of the bridge is as far as the number of beds and locations. So currently we have, we have 42 beds. Um, we have a men's um, main facility in Pacific Grove that houses 22. We have a second phase facility for graduates that houses six. We have a women's home that houses six and a second phase women's home for graduates that houses six. Amazing. And, and now in this, uh, two years ago, Bridge Napa started as a spinoff of Bridge Pacific Grove, mm -hmm. and they have six and six, so they have 12 beds there as well. Just amazing, Mike. Well, you know, you telling that story about, like, Bob telling you to don't say anything to Michelle, and let's see if God just confirms it to her without you bringing it up to her. The miraculous part of that story to me is that you were able to not say anything for a whole year. I know you, man. That must have been so painful. That was, I, I would ask him all the time, why can't I say anything? And he said, you just, because you need to know that you truly heard from God. Wow. And so that was, that was tough. That was really tough. And Bob even asked Michelle um, once the conversation started, did Mike ever mention this to you? And she said, no, not a word. And I'm pretty surprised. Hmm. Well, that's that's interesting. That's in, in kind of it's interesting counsel. I don't know that I would always give that counsel. Like, hey, don't say anything to your wife. Just see if it happens. You know, you can kind of lead your wife into things. But I think for you and for the magnitude of what God was going to do through mm -hmm. this ministry, that was a real word from the Lord. So, what made you want to? Before the bridge started, before the residential program, before the Monday night uh, regeneration meetings, what made you want to do this for people? Why was this something that was on your heart? Probably because of what had happened to me. To go um, from a successful um, career being a firefighter paramedic I went to school for many many years to to do to do to go from that being married with four children to then losing all of my jobs to be homeless living in my car um, and then to recover because I met Jesus there was I mean it was to me there was no option you know, people often think somebody should do this or somebody should do that. And they often wait for somebody to do that. And sometimes that never happens. So for me, when I felt like somebody needs to do that, you know, God, God's answer to me was, well, why not you? And so I was a little bit hesitant at first, but, but 
why not me? Hmm. You know, why not me? Hmm. So you had an experience with addiction yourself for a long time and God rescued you from it. And then that's when you began saying, I think God wants to use my life in this way. So how for you, what was the story of how did you become addicted in the first place? So the way I became addicted in the first place, I think is the most common way that most people become addicted. Um, I had an injury. I broke my jaw. Um, I was a welder fabricator, broke my jaw, started taking a lot of telling I was coding and my dad being in my life, who has been an addict his entire life, um, would take my prescriptions and increase the, you know, if it was for 20, he would write a one and make it for 120. Uh, so him and I began to abuse the pills and use them much quicker. So then we would go uh, doctor shopping, um, doctor's office to doctor's office, to doctor's office to get prescriptions, mm. to be able to continue getting the medication that we needed. Um, so that's how I initially started. But like most people, you know, eventually you're going to make the transition to something different, mm. you know, and I made the transition, um, to heroin because I, I managed to separate from that with my dad, I managed to get married and have three kids um, with my first wife, Shelly, and then keep that separation in my life um, from my dad. Um, but again, being having my dad back in my life, I was again introduced to, uh, that at that time, heroin. Mm. My dad wanted me to use heroin with him so that I would understand it, so then I could help him stop using heroin. If that makes it doesn't make any sense, but to him it made perfect sense. Hey, use heroin with me, and then you you and I can get off heroin together. Wow! And so that's what introduced me to heroin. Wow! Do you when you look back on that? Because I think I remember reading in your book, uh, he introduced you to heroin. Did he introduce you to heroin when you were really young? Uh, or was it, was it like you said, only after I was, and actually, I actually got things out of sequence. So he actually introduced me to heroin. Um, when I, I think it was 19. I thought I'd remembered that a late teenager. Yeah, I was 19 and, uh, um, he introduced me to heroin. Well, he actually called my grandma and, and said that he was strung out on heroin. Send, you know, send Mike. Can you send Mike? I was because I was actually staying with my grandparents, helping them out because they were elderly. And uh, my grandma, being real codependent herself and really wanting to help my dad out, um, asked me to go down and get him off. Get get your dad off the dope. Mm. And so I drove down there. I walked in. I rehearsed. I re- it was a twelve hour. I rehearsed the whole way. You know, just say no. You know, seriously. I mean, that was kind of the whole. So you knew era. it was coming. You knew he oh, was yeah. going to try like, to so drag I, you. Oh yeah, you know, that. I came in, I I pulled into the parking lot just as he was getting home from work, and I'm like, "All right, just stop." Uh, and so my dad is not a huge guy, but he's very intimidating. He he literally grabbed his shirt and just ripped his shirt off, threw it at me, and told me just to f off. 
Yeah. Get out of here. You're not my son. So I'm like, whatever. Got in my car. Um, and I remember the way that I wrote it in the book because it was, it was the way it actually happened. It was like when I got on my, when he did the whole ripping off of the shirt and told me I wasn't his, and it was like he planted a seed. And as I drove, I remember driving through, I was like hitting Lancaster, Palmdale area, like trying to think of what I was going to tell my grandma when I got back home, why I left. And that seed began to like, to like grow. It was like, and the, 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 the seed was like guilt, like, you know, like, and the further I got, the bigger it got. And I finally couldn't take it anymore, the guilt and the shame of me walking away. And I just got off on the exit, um, drove back, uh, parked my car, walked into his apartment. He was sitting at the kitchen table waiting for me. And I would have been wow. gone probably close to two hours, maybe a little bit longer. And he was just sitting at the kitchen table and so I sat down and uh, uh, rolled up my sleeve, and he cooked some heroin up and shot me up, and I spent, I spent the whole night throwing up, hmm. you know. And so that was kind of the start of our using heroin together, which went on for a little over a year. Wow. So when you, when you started walking with the Lord, did you struggle with anger and resentment towards your father? Was it? Uh, compassion was it a mixture of emotions was it just like a I don't know what to feel what was that like so I, I would say when I started walking with the Lord um, I don't think I've ever had real animosity toward my dad I, I feared him I mean I was afraid of him like scared to death of him because of the things that he did to me. I mean, um, hiring someone to kill me and vandalizing our home and uh, that kind of thing. But I think I just always wanted a dad. Hmm. You know, even at that level of abuse, it was like, I just want my dad, I just want my dad, I just want my dad, I just want my dad. And um, funny enough is when I, when I came to Christ, he... Um, ended up in a uh, rehab up here in San Jose, Victory Outreach San Jose. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I went to a, uh, a kind of a tent thing they had there, uh, kind of a revival in San Jose. Uh, I knew my dad was going to be there, and I um, was sitting with him, and he actually got saved. Wow. At that event, I walked up with him. Um, he accepted Christ. He truly accepted Christ. Um, and then he uh, ended up going back to Northern California. Um, I lived here in the area. Um, and uh, he just, I don't know, I don't think he walked with Christ, but I believe that moment was that he did submit to Christ. He went back home and started drinking again and kind of, kind of went back to his old life but but you have that hope i have that hope yeah. yeah and and he's no longer with us no he actually passed away shortly after we started the monday night meeting wow so i mean i gotta ask you you just kind of threw it out there like it happens all the time but you said your dad hired someone 
to kill you. That's never happened to me before. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know your dad pretty well. So. What are you talking about? So we, um, my dad had been, so kind of what set the whole thing off was, um, it was good to have my dad, um, um, Michelle, my wife wanted to have my dad in our lives. So she invited him into our lives, not knowing, I tried to tell her how he was Mm. and who he was. She did. She didn't buy it. She wanted to be a part of our lives, the kids' lives. So. He started drinking a lot, so we told him it was my daughter Sarah's birthday. We said, if you show up drinking, you can't be there. And so he, a cab pulled up. He fell out of the cab. We put him back in the cab, sent him home, and that kind of started a war. So nightly, he would come by our house. He broke the windows out of our car. He would spray paint profanities on the driveway. He would break our windows. He was caught burglarizing our house on multiple occasions. Um, and went to jail a lot for it. And the unique part of it was I was a a local paramedic and fireman. And so to go to work and pick your dad up multiple times or to go to work at at the hospital and have him say, oh, we picked your dad up twice today. It's like, oh, brother. Hmm. So I knew all the police, you know, and so my dad was in and out of jail and out of the ER being picked up all the time. And one day we were, Saturday afternoon, we were just watching TV and this, somebody knocked at the door and I answered it. And this young man said, you don't know me, but my dad, your dad hired me to kill you. Um, I'm not supposed to do it tonight. He, uh, very polite, very polite. He said, but I've been watching you guys for like the last week or so. And you seem like pretty normal. You know, you have, you have little kids. I see him playing outside. He said, but tonight, um, when you when you go to work, I know you get home at seven in the morning. I'm supposed to be hiding around the garage, and then I'm, I have a he had a taser. I'm supposed to tase you, and then I'm supposed to cave your skull in with a bat, and it's right here. And I'm supposed to spray paint on the on the garage door in orange spray paint DOA for dead on arrival. And your dad already paid me 750 bucks. Um, I'm supposed to do it tonight. He's really, pers- or in the morning, he's really persistent. He's really anxious to get this done. And so we're like, okay. So we called the police and uh, they came over and they took, his, the young man's name was Derek. They took him down to the police department. They wired him up and took him to my dad's house. But my dad was so intoxicated, they couldn't get enough really good, like, recording intelligible intelligible uh um so and then derek the next day called us and said i am i am really sorry but i'm i'm out of here and he actually left and went back to arkansas where he came from oh my goodness and so that was uh that was just that happened yeah so that happened yeah (laughs) i was like see i told you (laughs) okay so your father was really instrumental in introducing you to heroin and, you know, opening the door for addiction to happen and everything. So fast forward, you know, you're, you, um, are now married to Michelle and, you know, battling, uh, addiction. And you were, if I remember right, you were for a while, you were functioning as a paramedic well, yeah, I worked, actually worked for the city of Carmel Fire. I worked for Mid Valley Fire, and then I worked for American Medical Response. I worked all three. Wow. Um, 
in and out of emergency rooms all day around doctors all day and using heroin. Wow. All day. Wow. And what was that doing to your life and your marriage and your everyday experience? It was tough because Michelle believed that I was using, but I denied it. So I made her feel like she was something was wrong. How did she know her? Just the way I, just my always falling asleep. We were always broke. Things were always, you know, um, and I laugh now, but when you're a heroin addict, the big question is what happens to all the spoons? Michelle would always say, where's all the spoons? Okay. You know, because they're in your car or they're bent. You have to bend them. You know, you oh. bend them to cook the dub. I'm like, why are all the spins always, spoons always bent? So I would buy, go to the Goodwill and buy more spoons. And of course, she's like, well, these aren't our spoons. You know, oh. and so that's always kind of the joke in any heroin addict's kind of family. It's like, where are all the spoons? You know, the kids can't eat the cereal in the morning. All you the know? spoons have been used yeah. for other things. And so she believed. And then, you know, there was just, you know, a lot of trips to doctors to try to get more medications and stuff like that. So she kind of always knew and she always questioned me, but I always denied it. And then I just came to a point one day um, while she was at where she worked for a community hospital, actually herself. Yeah. And uh, one day I just wrote like this, literally a 20 page letter, just confessing to everything. And she came home, she went to the bathroom, I slid it under the bathroom door. Oh my goodness. And just went in the kitchen, I mean, and just sat at the table and waited. And so she called me, you know, in the bedroom and she called me in sick to work. She said, you're not going to work tonight. Where's all your heroin? Where's all your syringes? I surrendered it all. She destroyed it all. She called called me in sick to work. She made an appointment with the recovery center um, the next morning for me to be interviewed and in her treatment mm -hmm. uh, for the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was just, I had kind of had enough and I was like ready to confess it and get clean and move on. Now, was she a Christian at that point in her life? <sighs> Not really. We were, we had, when we came here, we went to uh, the little church on Congress, first church of God. Yeah. And it was, I think, it was funny because they were so happy to see us because I think the next youngest person at the church was probably 62 or, you know, maybe 72. They were, you know, so we were searching for a church. She hadn't yet got saved, but we had both decided we wanted to find a church. Yeah. And my ex-wife was actually going to this church, but we were, we weren't going to do that. Right. We're not going to church with your ex-wife. A little awkward. Yeah. We're not doing that. Yeah. And so, um, she no she so she didn't but um i think shortly after i got out of treatment i uh we separated for a while and i i came by to visit her and she told me that she'd became a christian and i was i exploded i really? mean i was furious i mean i was i couldn't have been angrier why was that do you think because i'm like because she she explained to me how it worked and this totally ludicrous thing this guy that i can't see is in charge of me. He's in charge of you. He's more important than you. He's more important than our kids. So it's God, you, and the kids. And I'm like, well, that that's stupid. <laughs> I yelled, I think at the top of my lungs, God is not in charge. I'm in charge. And I kicked a chair and it went flying across the room and it broke the back two wooden supports out of it. Um, 
the funny thing is, fast forwarding today, if you go to the bridge and go up into room three, that same chair sits in the corner next to one of the guy's beds with those same two. Um, so whenever I go up there, I, I love telling any new guys in the room kind of the story. That was the chair that I broke the night I found out my wife became a Christian. Um, so it was pretty funny. But I'm like, how could like? Because when when Manny taught on Sunday, he said, you know, you know, God with a bod. It, I knew what he meant. I'm like, my wife dedicated her life to this guy. She couldn't see. That was insane. Yeah. You know. So after that first little stint at, in rehab at uh, at Chomp, obviously that didn't stick for you. Yeah. Was it pretty quickly that you got back into into heroin? Probably a couple of months. Okay. You know. And how many years? of of a uh, heroin use from that point forward for you probably I, I there were four rehabs um i i did the recovery center and then i did the recovery center because i relapsed and then i did the the camp in scotts valley and then i ended up my final rehab was victory outreach in salinas how did that one go uh well they hated me I, I, because now running a rehab, I totally, I, I hate people like me. Well, I don't, I mean, you know what I mean? I don't hate people. I, it's like people like me are just crazy. Michelle dropped me off. She told me she was leaving me. She was moving back to, to Reading. She was moving back in with her mom. And so I took my stuff inside and lit a cigarette on the porch. And they, are you kidding me? They almost tackled me. For that cigarette. Oh, you, <laughs> yeah. you can't smoke here. What's wrong with you? And they got really angry at me for smoking. And I think the first night I snuck out of the house three times, which they came and found me and brought me back. Uh, um, the director there, his name is Charlie. He's actually a pastor in Milwaukee now. He, he felt like we had a lot in common with our stories. And so um, the next day, he actually took me to work with him. He was doing landscaping, so he took me to work with him, and we would just we, we went, you know, did a couple jobs. He he allowed me to like, you know, snag some cigarette butts off the ground and smoke them. You know, don't tell anybody. Um, but you know, we, I really connected with him in kind of a really strong way, and it, it really felt like he cared for me and about me. Um, but I only ended up being there for three days hmm. before running away. No, I mean, before I ended up, I ended up going, unfortunately, I ended up going into the hospital. Oh, right. So. So tell us about that. So it's kind of, so this is, a, this is, if you want to talk about a God story, this is one of those things. I, uh, I woke up in the morning, I had like a bump on both of my legs. I knew I had abscesses. I, I used to have abscesses like every day, but being, having access to medical equipment, I would just do them myself, take antibiotics and be fine. But I knew those were an excuse to get, to go to the ER. And I knew at the ER, there's, they're going to give me morphine or Versed or they're going to give me something to, because then I won't be detoxing anymore. So I wasn't really worried about those bumps. I just wanted the drugs. Mm. And so after being there about three or four hours, I, I, I was laying there thinking, do I really want to do this? Because I've been kicking heroin for two days. I, a couple more days, I'll be over the worst of it. So do I really want to? hang out here and get morphine or whatever yeah but not really and so i told the doctor i said hey i these are these are fine i, I want to go home i want to go back to the program um i really honest to god i just wanted the morphine he's like oh cool go 
So they uh, discharged me, and I went back to the program. And the director's wife, Charlie, she said, what are you doing back, Mike? And I told her exactly what well, my mindset was that I only went because I wanted drugs, that I realized that that was stupid, that I might as well start my detox. And she said, you know what? I know a lot about the enemy. I think the enemy asked you to come back here. And I said, hallelujah, I get to go back to the hospital. So she made me go back to the hospital. Oh, man. She said, I think you need to go back to the hospital. So I went back to the hospital and uh, the, they did an MRI and the doctor came in. And he said, oh, we need to, we need to, who can we call? And I said, call for what? He said, well, you have, you have a, a disease called necrotizing fasciitis and you have tunnels all through both of your legs. It's really, 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 really bad. You're going to be really sick and you're probably not going to survive. And so I, I asked him not to call my wife. He called my wife anyway. And that would be the last thing that I remember. Wow. I mean, really? And that was on November 17th. And I woke up on December 23rd. Um, just, you know, like you wake up every morning. I woke wow. up and I, I looked around and I'm like, why is there a Christmas tree in my room? Huh. And so I was I started to get up and I realized I couldn't I couldn't move. I mean I couldn't move at all. And so I pushed the button um and I told the nurse, Hey, I can't move. And she said, Well, I'll have the doctor come and see you. And so I tried to get up again and I couldn't get up. I couldn't move my whole left side I couldn't move anything at all. And so the doctor came in and she sat down and she said, Well, um, you came in on November 17th. Between November 17th and November 27th, you had 10 operations to remove the, the, uh, the flesh that your, the, the bacteria was eating up. It was eating it faster than we could cut it away. So we did 10 surgeries, and then on, during your 10th surgery, you suffered a stroke. And so you can't move because you're paralyzed. And then she went on to explain that the brain damage, in fact, was so bad that they would revoke my driver's license for the rest of my life, that I was not going to get better, that I was probably going to be eventually be transferred to a nursing home where I would probably eventually succumb to pneumonia, and that would be that. And uh, um, not knowing all the stuff that happened while I was kind of in the whole coma. You know, the family was called in. The kids were called in from school. They were going to Calvary, Calvary Chapel High School mm -hmm. at the time. And they all, everybody came in to say their goodbyes. Um, but then I just, I, I didn't die. You know, night after night, I just kept surviving. I, you know, the interesting thing is I kept getting sicker and getting more things wrong with me but I kept pulling through and surviving. Um, but they did tell me that, yeah, you're, even though you're getting better, you're not going to walk. Hmm. I remember a conversation I had with a, the, uh, a, a therapist came in with uh, one day and said, give us like three goals. I said, okay, I want to, I want to walk. I want to work. And I used to be a runner, so I want to run again. And so about an hour later, the same 
psychiatrist or shrink, whatever therapist came back in with a doctor and they gave me a pill cup. And I said, what's this? And they said, that's antidepressants. And I said, why do I need antidepressants? And they said, because you're not going to be able to do any of those things. So you need to come to the reality of that. You're not going to walk. You're not going to run. You're not going to work. You're going to be on social security disability for the rest of your life. So you need to get all that out of your head. And so I refused to take the medication. They called Michelle. Big mistake. You know, no, he's not going to take it. And so I didn't, and uh, eventually was transferred to a Santa Clara Valley Medical Center to, supposed to be there for like four months, maybe-ish, um, to learn how to walk, read, write, tell time, put on my shoes, brush my teeth, go to the bathroom, use toilet paper. I mean, I, I, I was, it was bad. Mm. So that's what I went there for, um, to learn how to re, to do the basic skills of life. And at what stage of this time did you say, man, I, I need to invite Jesus into my life. I, I need to submit to him. So in my room, there was this, it, it's kind of like in Manny's office. This entire wall is a dry erase board. I had 10 therapists. And so every day they would write my treatment plans on the board. Well, Michelle came in with the kids and my daughter, Sarah, just grabbed some paper towels and walked over and erased everything. And I was like, what are you doing? And she took the dry erase marker and she started writing the book of James. Hmm. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing your faith produces patience. And I'm like, what? the heck are you doing that's stupid um and she was how old uh, she was like 11 12 yeah yeah, pretty young and i was like what are you doing um and so i was like the therapist's gonna be really mad uh and so later that day this this was actually on a sunday so therapists weren't coming until monday so Sunday afternoon, um, I was in isolation because I had what's called MRSA. So I had to be in isolation. So when the family came in, they had to gown up, and I had to gown up. And it was just, so there was a lot of isolation there. Um, so the nurse came in. She said, hey, why don't I wheel a TV into your room? Um, she said, the good news, bad news, you can watch TV. The bad news is we have two channels. You have the chaplain's channel or Spanish soccer all right, so I watched about as much soccer as I could take um, and then um, switched to the chaplain's channel. And they showed that old school Jesus video, the old one, like the really bad one. <laughs> Sorry, Sue Goldsmeyer. Uh, it was bad. But I watched it, and it like struck me, and it like, it like drew me out. And at the very end, it says, if you, if you pray this prayer, Jesus will come into your heart and into your life. And... I was like crying so, sobbing so hard I could barely say the words, but I did. And uh, um, I was like, all right, I'm, I think I'm a Christian. And Monday morning came and the therapist came in, a physical therapist, and he said, 
are you a believer? And I said, I am now. Because of the James. Last night. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he saw that. He goes, are you a believer? And I said, "Uh, I am. He said, for how long have you been a believer? I said, since last night. And then I told him what happened. And uh, he said, you know what? I get off of work at 3 o'clock. How about if I come and pick you up in your room, take you down to the basement, um, which is where the gym was, and, uh, and, and work with you? Like, try to get you to be able to stand and stuff like that. And we can talk about, talk about faith, because I'm, I'm really not allowed to do that while I'm here at work, but I can do it after work on my own time. How does that? I said, that sounds great. And so he began to do that. Three o'clock came, he would pick me up, take me down to the basement, and start working with me to, uh, to first stand, and then after actually only a few days to walk. I wow. mean, well, <laughs> I, say I, I, could, I could take like two side steps. Okay. That's, that, I considered that yeah, walking. Yeah. And so to me, that was a big victory. And then he would, he, I think for like four or five days, he took me down to the basement and we would talk about the Bible and talk about church or he would talk about church. I I really didn't have a whole lot of church and he would share scriptures with me and hope with me and continue to work with me. And then finally he said, you know what? You're, you can actually take a few steps. So he said tomorrow when the doctor comes in to see, cause it was like a bunch of us in the same room. When he comes in to see the other patients, get up and just walk over to the bathroom sink and I guarantee you he'll discharge you. And so I was really excited. So the next day the doctor came in. I, I, he said, hey, how long have you been walking? And I said, since like yesterday. He says, well, you don't belong in my hospital. Wow. And so he told the nurse to make discharge plans, um, which I think that was day 11 there. Hmm. And I was supposed to be there for months and months and months. So I called Michelle and I said, hey, I'm being discharged. She said, no, you're not. You're just, you're confused. So she, she actually called and she said, holy cow, I'm, I don't even know if I want you home. <laughs> she, she was counting on a little more time. But what, I guess what had happened was that they would not accept me there in, in San Jose unless I had a place to go home to. So she had to reluctantly sign some paperwork saying that she would allow me to come home. Wow. Even though she didn't want me to come home. Yeah. Yeah. She had just recently left. Yeah. It's like, are back you with her mom. It's like, it's like, really? So, yeah. Wow. Now, prior to all this, uh, you know, you were, I remember there being a period uh, where I would, you know, I was young, just getting started in ministry. I was around the church and I remember your van being parked out on the parking lot at night and there was times you'd come into the church and all of that. So Michelle was part of the fellowship here and you were not you had not yet gone through all of this yet i had not but i i mean i was attracted to it mm-hmm. um she actually um probably during that period of time i had went to your your dad and asked for permission to leave because by then she'd become a believer and i hadn't been unfaithful so she in her her early understanding of the bible was looking for biblical grounds Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a, it was a barbecue, I think in your neighborhood that she went to and she talked to your dad and, 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 and he said, no, I, 
I think God is going to do something in Mike's life. I think you, I think you should, you know, stick around and mm -hmm. see what happens. Um, so she, she didn't end up leaving, but I couldn't be in the house, but I felt safe sleeping in my car here at night. So I, I lived in the parking lot for gosh, for off and on for probably over a year. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, uh, we've talked for a, a good amount of time so far, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface on your story. I mean, like we didn't even really get into your childhood at all. And I remember in reading your book, I just was struck with, it almost just felt to me like you were like, it was like this setup for like, like there's just this evil presence, like trying to get a hold of you from real early on. Did you, did you feel that way? I, I do. I mean, yeah. I mean, just the, I mean, I think most people would have a hard time even believing any of 99% of the things that I, ha I had gone through as a child and like for me, Christmas is the hardest time of the year mm. um, because I it was probably every single Christmas, as far back as I can remember, my dad would do these horrific things. You know, um, some things are way too graphic to even talk about here. Um, um, but every Christmas he would attempt suicide. So oh. our Christmases were spent in the emergency room or him being in jail. So I was telling Michelle um, the other day, once she says the Christmas tree is coming out, then I, I get anxious. I get my heart starts pounding really fast. I get uneasy. I get a little bit cranky. It's just, it, 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 it's really hard for me um, thinking about the tree coming out and the decorations coming out. It just, it, it's a really anxious time for me. Mm, yeah, it's like a PTSD. It is. So we had one of our ladies, we're, we're having a really hard time the other day. She's, you know, she's struggling with some depression. And, uh, and I told her, I said, well, I only get depressed. I don't know if I even really call it depressed. Anxious and a little bit depressed. In, sometimes it's at Christmas time. Mm -hmm. You know, last year I was in the hospital for Christmas, so... I was telling Michelle, I, was, I missed being gone. I was in there for five weeks, but I was like, I, I didn't have any anxiety last year because there was no tree, there was no decorations, <laughs> there was no reminder of my past. So wow. it was kind of nice in that way. Yeah. Well, for those of you guys that are have listened this far, you know, I'd encourage you, if you're interested, to read Mike's book and, and get the fuller picture. Uh, Mike, if they want to get involved in the ministry, if they need to go to regeneration or um, want to, you know, investigate maybe helping out with regeneration, uh, what time is that? And so that's every Monday, and I mean every Monday, yeah. uh, unless it's Christmas Day, and we meet every single Monday at seven, and have been since, like I said, since two thousand and and two thousand and four. Oh. So uh, come on out and just uh, grab me. I'd love to have love to have a chat with you. And just uh, there are so many really good people that come there that are just looking for other people to connect with that aren't necessarily like with uh, like we want to have people involved with what we call more normal people. Like have mm -hmm. some relationships outside of their addiction. Yeah, you know, people within the body of Christ. So important. That, 
you know, I mean, every, everybody needs that because when you leave that world, you feel like you've left all your friends, all, I mean, they're really not your friends, but to, to meet new people that are doing life on life's terms, they're not taking, they're not getting drunk, they're not, you know, they're not being unfaithful, they're not having all these addictions, but to have like a friend that doesn't want anything from you other than to be your friend, that's like, that's like fresh news. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things whenever I get a chance to talk to, especially men in the bridge house, I just encourage them because you, I think when they're going through the program, they can, it's hard to have a vision for what life will look like afterwards because for some of them, they haven't really known anything other than the life they've been living. And so it's hard to see what's coming. But having watched the house and watched the ministry for so many years now, I'm able to, with real confidence, tell them, if you stick with it and you press into these church relationships and this whole new thing that you're experiencing, stuff is going to happen for you. Because they're just around the church and the people in the body, you know, the relationships form, love happens, and open doors happen and their lives just kind of are off to the races as a result. So if Mike, you could give a word of encouragement to kind of close us out today, you know, I know you love people so much. You love people who are struggling. You love the church. You love people. So what would be a word of uh, exhortation or encouragement you'd like to give with us to wrap things up? I would say um, to pray for those that you know that are lost. Mm. You know, that's so important. You know how many times I hear people say, my grandma prayed for me my whole time. My mom prayed for me. My aunt prayed for me my whole time. But knowing that the body of Christ here, Calvary Monterey, is praying for these men and women gives them more hope and more joy than you guys could even imagine. Mm. Like, you mean, the conversation I was having with the girl, you mean all of those people to pray for us? Yeah. Really, they do. That is so powerful for them. Like, there is like 500, 600 people here that like, that are praying for me that don't even know me. Yeah, they, they do. That is so powerful. Mm. So keep praying for the lost. Keep praying for, um, not just the addicted. I mean, there are so many types of addiction, not just drug addiction. There is sexual addiction. And there is, I mean, it's all things that take our focus off Christ. So just pray for the lost. You know, and keep praying. Be steadfast in your praying. Amen, brother. Well, listen, man, I, I can't wait to talk with you again. I want to ask you some questions just about addiction and the specifics of your ministry and um, advice that you'd give and, and all of that. But thanks so much for sharing just a little bit of your story today. I hope it blesses some people. And uh, we as a church family, man, we're just blessed to have you and Michelle pouring out your lives for our church for this community for these men and women so keep it up man we're praying for you thank you we pray that today's discussion has blessed you if you enjoyed today's episode please like subscribe and share so we can continue to reach people and make jesus famous in our lives and the lives around us until next time god bless